Does Medicare Advantage scam seniors? Ron and I will talk about that, and what does a divided government mean for healthcare? Plus, a new study from the Pacific Research Institute says hospitals are rolling in the dough with profits from the government's 340B program. We'll discuss what that actually means. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast. Podcast brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me is he has been as the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Harrigan. Ron, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. Just as a quick programming note for all of you that are aware, there will not be a Friday Pulse Check newsletter later this week. So this podcast is all you're getting from us, but that's okay. We'll be back next week after the holiday. And of course, I remind you that the Flatlining Podcast is now available on Stitcher and Pandora. So if those are your preferred apps, you can find us there just by searching for the Flatlining Podcast. Uh, Ron, we got a couple of things I want to talk about today. And the first one is a study that popped up in the Pacific Research Institute uh, over the past few weeks about um, the amount of money that providers get as profits for the 340B program. And I guess first, let's start with, for, for people that don't know, what is the 340B program? So the 340B program was a program that was designed around trying to ensure access to um, care specifically in sort of underserved rural communities. And basically the way the program works is it allows for and kind of requires that um, drug companies sell their products to facilities that qualify for the program. And they're usually hospitals. And they're usually hospitals that are in a an area or can show certain criteria for providing uninsured or charity care. And those are typically more in rural areas. So if you're one of these facilities, you qualify for 340B, you buy drugs at a significantly reduced rate. And then you, in essence, are providing those drugs for insurance or um, other Medicare, Medicaid members, et cetera, um, and, and the ones that you're able to provide and actually get reimbursement on, you make profit on. Now, it should be noted that the, the, the rationale for this and when this started was really before the Affordable Care Act. And it was when, you know, the country was dealing with 40, 45, 50 million uninsured people. And what these rural hospitals were saying is, look, I can't provide these services, these high cost drugs, because when I do sell them to somebody with insurance, if you will, I get paid a, a portion, a margin above that drug cost. But then all these people who have don't have insurance, I don't get any money for that. And so I'm buying a product, a drug, if you will, and I'm actually losing money on it. And it's mm -hmm. and, and so I, I'm not going to be able to provide this necessary but very expensive um, therapy. So that's why 340B was created, was to help offset that by the by the manufacturers. Now, since that time, the number of uninsured hasn't gone to zero, but it's gone down significantly and other things have happened. And I think the concern people have is that they get to buy a drug at a significantly lower price, get to sell it at a very high margin and make, you know, these windfall profits on these drugs, which is happening. So what it sounds like is that when the Affordable Care Act, in a sense, kind of solved the problem that the 340B program was intended to solve, um, 
like maybe not solve, but at least replace it with a different way yeah. of, of, of fixing the problem. Yeah. I mean, it definitely changed the environment. Um, and to me now the, you know, if, if the simple question is, are, are hospitals now making profit on these drugs? Absolutely. But then it begs a bigger question is throughout healthcare, we have all of these um, hidden taxes, if you will, or mm -hmm. one entity subsidizing another. So I'm sure there are a lot of hospitals making, you know, really solid profit margins on these drugs, but they may be providing care to a large part of, let's say, Medicaid population that is right. below their cost. Mm -hmm. um, just like we know that, you know, employers pay much higher prices for hospital services and physician services because they have to offset what Medicare doesn't pay. These are all mm -hmm. sort of hidden taxes. Right. And so I think the, the question is, well, if you got rid of this, what would happen to some of those rural hospitals? Where would they then get that money from somewhere else, if you will? Right. And that was going to be my next question is because as we've talked about multiple times on this program, inflation is hurting everyone and it's hurting healthcare, especially with, with particularly with the cost of labor right now um, being through the roof. Um, and that was going to be my next question is if you were to take away this program or phase it out, what kind of financial hit would a lot of these hospitals be looking at? And I suppose it depends really on where they are in the country. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. It absolutely does. Where they are and what their situation is, what their payer mix is, stuff. Um, the problem with this stuff is it's not wrong. It's just it's looking at one specific piece. It's like cherry picking. Um, it's just like years ago, people would rail about, well, you know, why does a Advil cost $10 in a hospital? Mm -hmm. You can buy it for a cent, you know? Well, the point is, you know, that you have to look at sort of the overall financial health. Should we get rid of 340B? In one respect, I think, yes, we should. But should we also look at how the government compensates hospitals and physicians and a lot of other things? Absolutely. If you only do one piece, you might damage somewhere else. And if you're not willing to look at the whole system, then you got to be careful about only attacking one piece of it. Mm -hmm. The Pacific Research Institute, who authored this study, offered a, a few prescriptions, if you will, to kind of fix the, the problems that they identified with the program. Uh, and the first one they mentioned was requiring improved patient outcomes. And basically, they want to have eligibility standards tightened that would make providers and hospitals demonstrate that they are serving low-income patients and that they're meeting the minimum charity care thresholds. Do you think that's a good solution to the to the problem that, quote unquote, I'll put it in, 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 in scare quotes, problem that some of these uh, providers are, are facing by breaking in money from this program? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a bad thing at all to relook at the qualification statistics. I mean, if the environment has changed and there's less um, uninsured, et cetera, then we should look at what it takes to require, you know, to qualify. Because there are probably a number of hospitals now that shouldn't qualify for 340B that don't need that, you know, that reduced pricing to, to make them so sold. And there are probably many hospitals that still do. Mm -hmm. Now, the one thing that I was a little nervous about when they talked about is require improved patient outcomes, which to me is a little bit different than saying, I, I would sort of better categorize that to say, you know, re-examine the qualification requirements right. um, then because when I first read that I was like well what do you mean improve patient outcomes and what they're really talking about is making sure that they're really the program is really doing what it's supposed to which is serving low-income patients charity care etc mm-hmm 
Another thing they brought up was the the what they called the contract pharmacy loophole. Can you explain briefly what the contract pharmacy loophole is in the 340B program? So the contract pharmacy loophole is, you know, it's like a tax loophole. Mm -hmm. You know, anytime you create some set of regulations, whether it's the tax code or 340B or anything, very smart people try to find ways to you know, utilize it to their advantage. Let's, I'm trying to be polite and do it that right. way. Um, <laughs> well, so the facility qualifies for 340B. The definition of the facility and what's under the control of the facility is how they find this loophole. And so what they do with these hospitals would say, well, yeah, I qualify as a hospital and I am now the managing entity for this pharmacy in, in what could be in an affluent area. Okay, well, because it falls under my definition of who I am as a facility, suddenly that pricing gets afforded to that pharmacy, which truly doesn't meet the spirit and the intent right. of the law. Now, you know, this gets back to, and I've said this in a number of other things, don't hate the player, hate the game. What these hospitals are doing is not illegal. Mm -hmm. They're just maximizing the benefit of the law. Well, then, and I agree with them on that, close the loophole. You know, change the law to say, no, no, this only applies to physical locations that are meeting the need or say, well, every physical location is going to apply to this has to meet these same charity requirements and free care, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I once had a conversation with a friend about loopholes, and, and he kind of facetiously said that uh, loopholes aren't bad because all you're doing is using the laws of this country to your advantage, you know. Um, and in one sense, he's right. You know, you could talk about the ethical uh, dilemma after the fact, but in one sense, yeah, it, it's he's right. Uh, one other thing they mentioned was um, market distortions that increase patient costs. What kind of market distortions do we see around the 340B program? Well, I think you know, what they're getting at there is we know that there is a enormous problem with drug prices going up and up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and I don't think they're necessarily wrong in this. They're saying part of these things help support that because to the extent that we insulate these price increases from the marketplace, um, it drives further increases. And what he's saying here is these drugs get priced at these, these programs that reduce cost and it helps insulate the market from what's happening with their real price, and that's helping being inflationary. Now, it's not the only thing. And in, in and of itself, this isn't going to fix the problem for drug price increases, but it's probably a contributing factor. It'd be fairly easy to, to sort of fix. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have this brief for you for this study available in the show notes for this program at uh, flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to this program. The next thing we want to talk about, Ron, is, is we want to dive a little bit into the politics uh, thing again, because we've talked about it a few times, uh, given what scenarios we might see coming out of the, the midterm election. And there's been a number of columns written over the past week or so about what a divided government's going to mean for health care. Um, I think you and I are in agreement that generally it's going to be a good thing because then at least nothing drastic is going to change. We're not going to have Medicare for all overnight or anything like that. Um, but I want to go through some of the columns that I've came across over the past few days about um, what a divided government might look like. And I guess first I want to get your reaction to, to whether or not this is necessarily a good thing uh, going into the next two years before the 2024 election. Yeah, and, I, and I'll tell you, I, I, I'll, I'm going to give you sort of two answers because I sure. think it, it, there's a, 
there's a, an answer that shows that divided government's actually going to be good, and there's an answer that's going to be bad. And so the good answer is, to the extent that government, if it wasn't divided, could do something that makes matters worse. And there's a pretty good track record of both parties being successful at making things worse. Um, then it's a good thing to have divided government because nothing major will happen. And whether you say, you know, that means that Medicare for all is going to pass and that's great because that would be terrible. Or you've put the other side, well, that means that, you know, privatization of, of Medicare um, uh, or Social Security is, isn't going to pass because the Republicans don't have full control. That's good. I mean, pick whichever, right. whichever side um, to the extent that you believe that any major action they take would liable to be make things worse, then yeah, divided by government's good. Now, the flip side is... Um, we are on, in my opinion, an unsustainable track. You know, mm -hmm. healthcare continues to consume a greater and greater percentage of gross domestic product. Eventually, it will fail. It can't become the entire economy. And it's on a trajectory at some point to do that. Well, if that's the case, then something's going to have to happen at some point. And if we continue to have divided government, it's unlikely that anything major is going to happen. So... The real question to me is, you know, we're not going to get a major fix to the system with divided government. And that's only good if the fix would make it things worse. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I don't, you know, I'm not sure I can come down on which is, is you know, is better, um, running the system into the ground or trying to fix it and make that happen even faster. <laughs> right. <laughs> um some of the columnists that, that have been talking in the past couple of weeks, and some of them are, are from interesting people, including Eric Hargan, uh, who was the um, deputy HHS secretary during the Trump administration. He wrote in Real Clear Policy uh, last week um, about some about a particular issue he thinks that Congress should move forward with and as a bipartisan issue, and it's expanding and keeping telehealth, uh, particularly the pandemic era changes to telehealth, um, permanent. And... Of course, we all saw the telehealth expanded drastically. We saw a lot of providers added on for the first time. Um, and I think particularly with your primary care provider, as we've talked about before, it, it, it's a good option for people who don't necessarily you know, need to go into the office to have a follow-up visit. And it can be particularly helpful in some rural communities. Now, he seems to make this a priority that it could be a bipartisan issue, but I'm not sure that... It, he seems to be concerned that telehealth might just suddenly go away um, unless Congress acts. But I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. What do you think about that? Well, so I agree with him that I think that um, we shouldn't go backwards on telehealth. Telehealth has a um, important role to play in healthcare delivery, and in many cases, it can be better, you know, for the patient. Uh, more efficient for the doctor. I mean, I my concern is I don't want it to replace mm -hmm. the face-to-face -face interaction because it's not the same. And we should have some guidelines on, you know, how often you do need to come see your doctor face-to-face. -face. The, the, you know, there's some of that diagnostic process they, they really can't do from a screen. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it should be there. And I think it should be made, you know, some of the things that happened during COVID should be made permanent. And those really revolve around being able to be reimbursed for it. Um, right. So I agree with him on that. I think there's a chance that something like that could be bipartisan. It, it should be because it, it shouldn't be a, an incredibly political issue. But 
everything seems to become a political right. issue. So I, I, I tend to get worried that, you know, anything could get, um, any good idea could get killed if somebody thinks that it's, you know, a win for the other party. Um, so, but it, that in and of itself is nibbling around the edges. I mean, it's a nice thing. Mm -hmm. It's not going to dramatically change the way healthcare cost or is delivered or right. is financed in this country. Um, and so there may be little things like that that we can get on it. I hope we do. Um, and, and I want to talk even about in a divided government. Right. And I want to talk about a few more of those, those little things in just a second. But I was just thinking about our conversation a few weeks ago about cybersecurity and healthcare. And I suppose it could be possible that something like this might get held up by, you know, someone who you might not normally expect, like a Mark Warner, uh, who wants to have his kind of weird stockpile of medical technology. Um, and he might want to have something like that thrown in there. And that might be what stalls some of these, you know, kind of nice niche little things that are, aren't, aren't super controversial. Well, and you bring up a bigger issue, not just for healthcare, but for anything right now. Right. When you have government that's this close and this desired, divided, I mean, I can't remember the last time the house was this close. You know, mm -hmm. usually whichever party controls the house can controls it by 20, 30, 40 votes, you know, mm -hmm. not a handful. Right. And you got the Senate, which is, you know, either 50-50 or 51-49. We now have a scenario where in either chamber, a very small number of people, one person in the Senate mm -hmm. or in the House, you know, less people than I have in my family, you know, yeah. could get together and block anything. Yeah, That's a really interesting, some people would say good and some people would say scary kind of environment. Mm -hmm. And you think about even with the house this is the first time I can remember that there's a chance that the people who thought uh, Kevin McCarthy would be speaker are actually saying, yeah, it's not a done deal yet. There's a number of people who are already mm -hmm. saying no, and we might have to see the Republicans come up with someone different as the speaker of the house, even though we've all thought that it was a shoe in right. for Kevin McCarthy all along. Right. Exactly. Well, and again, I mean, you, all it would take is a, a small handful of, and I don't think this will happen, but, a small handful of Republicans to say, hey, we'll vote with the Democrats. Mm -hmm. And and you could have, theoretically, you could have, you know, a Democrat Speaker of the House mm -hmm. with a Republican Speaker of the House. That's, you know, no, I don't think that's going to happen. No. I think what's going to happen is, and this may be worse, is that Kevin McCarthy is going to have to make deals with people that he's going to have to live up to mm -hmm. um, and deals with small numbers of people. Yeah, that's something that people got to remember is that um, the Speaker of the House does not have to be a member of the House. It can be any American citizen. So I remember there was right. talk for a little while there that if Trump lost in 2020, maybe they'd make him, but they kept the House. Well, then maybe they'll make Trump Speaker, which would just be a weird situation. Well, I'm kind of glad I, we're not going down that route. <laughs> I saw somebody who sort of laid out the scenario about um, Liz Cheney being Speaker. Hmm. You know, get a couple of yeah. the of the House Republicans that, let's say, voted for the impeachment, side with the Democrats, and, you know, sort of stick it to the other Republicans by making Liz Cheney the Speaker of the House. I mean, right. again, it's this is not anything that's going to happen. Theoretically, it could, but it does point out right. just how divided and close these votes are. Mm -hmm. and, and with that in mind, I want to talk about two other kind of niche little uh, healthcare things that, that are, could be good bipartisan uh, things to happen in a divided Congress. And these are both from Sally Pipes, who's at the uh, Pacific Research Institute. Uh, it seems like every time we have something like this come around, someone brings up HSA. She's bringing up HSAs again um, and making them 
a, a bigger deal than they currently are. But as we've talked about before, even when they've tried to expand the HSA programs, they're just not very popular. Yeah, and, and I think, and this is personal opinion, you know, we as a society, to a large degree, aren't very good at a non-consumption kind of savings environment. Yeah. You know, we've got all these opportunities, and you take retirement. You know, the vast majority of the American public doesn't save for retirement, even if they have, you know, availability of 401k, because we're the, I want it now, I want to buy and consume now. It's also why we have massive amounts of credit card debt. Mm -hmm. Well, an HSA is another way to sort of do that and, and squirrel money away for either known or projected healthcare expenses, and we just don't play that game as, as a society. So, yeah, I mean, would it be nice if, there was a lot of that? Yes. Has it been around for a long time? And do people take full advantage of it? No. No, they don't. Yeah. And they're not likely to. And it's interesting because I only ever hear the most about HSAs from people who think that it could be done as a bipartisan expansion. And then also from Dave Ramsey and, and the people that are very, you know, uber Dave Ramsey. But of course, he is the exact opposite of that culture that you talked about that we have in the U.S. of wanting it now and getting it now. And um, I always find it interesting yeah. when I see it brought up because... To me, the logic makes sense behind an HSA, but I can I can also mm -hmm. equally understand why they're not as popular. Uh, the other yeah, one, no, I, I, go like ahead. I said, it makes all sense in the world. It's just not something we. It makes all sense in the world. It's just not something we're used to doing a lot of. Mm -hmm. The the other interesting one she brought up, and this was one I was not aware of. It, it, it I must have missed it when we were doing our radar. Was it back in September? Uh, a bipartisan group in the House introduced legislation that would boost um, access for Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries to see um, nurse practitioners and um, PAs as opposed to seeing an MD. What do you think about something like that for the Medicare and Medicaid um, uh, beneficiaries? Because I know I've heard ads on, on the radio recently about, you know, go have your NP as a primary care provider. Well, and this one is a bit, I think, um, mislabeled, if you will. Sure, so, go ahead. You can have your MP be a primary care provider. Okay, there's nothing that says that you can't get, you know. Now, the, the real question, and this is something that gets debated both at a state and federal level, is to, to what degree can that practitioner practice purely independently? Mm -hmm. So in most states right now, the ability for them to practice purely independently is very limited. There needs to be a doctor who is in some sort of supervisory role whether it's just reviewing charts and signing off or actually in the same office sort of co-treating and that, but they, they, those NPs and PAs are tied to some MD who is supposed to be supervising what they're doing, supposed to be there and available for um, the difficult stuff and assume some liability for that. Mm -hmm. And that, that's the, the theory behind it is, well, they're not a physician. Now, I will tell you that there's a lot of schools of thought that think for a lot of very low end, and I don't mean this derogatorily, I mean, for the, a lot of stuff that are common things, sinus infections, you mm -hmm. know, flu, cold, all that stuff, they provide wonderful care, highly trained individuals, et cetera. But then, the, well, then why does a doctor have to be overseeing them? Well, the question becomes, well, how do they know when they should punt this to a doctor? Mm -hmm. You know, what if they're missing the signs of something? Now, I will tell you that I talked to a physician who's a good friend of mine who 
uh, was reviewing a malpractice case where he said, you know, and the doctor is being hooked on this as well and said, look, the doctor wasn't doing the oversight. The mid-level missed something that a doctor should have and would have caught, and it cost this patient their life. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, I, I personally don't like the idea of unfettered, complete individual practice of NPs or PAs because they're not doctors. Now, I think that they should be, and they currently are, you can have them as your primary care, as long as somewhere there's a doctor who's providing some amount of oversight. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I know we've had this conversation before uh, here, I think it was on this program, but I, I do, I do tend to agree with you. Cause the other thing that I think about is where I've had the best experience with a PA was in a follow-up visit, as opposed to the main visit mm-hmm. I had at a, at a specialist. Mm-hmm. And I will say coming out of that, that follow-up visit with the PA, I felt that there was they were able to spend more time with me and answer my questions right. in a more detailed sure. way than what I have when I've talked to a doctor. And that's not this. And it's in part because I know the other MDs that are working there are extremely busy because they have a lot yeah. of patients they have to see. So I, I, I think I tend to agree with you that there's, there's an, there's an appropriate time and a place for that to happen. You know, it's, it's interesting to see the idea of having it be, um, part of a, a Medicare, Medicaid, um, reformation if you will um and i'm not entirely sure what it would look like other than um being able to pick someone like that as your primary care physician under medicare and medicaid which i don't know if that's allowed in in under the medicare program yeah Yeah, and, and usually what happens now with groups is they're they're part of a practice or a group and you know i may see that pa or np for most of my care just so i know that there's a you know, somewhere a physician backup. And to be honest, this is really no different when you think about the continuum of care with what the the nurse does versus the doctor does. So for example, mm-hmm. you know, my last doctor's visit, you know, the doctor did all this stuff, et cetera. And then at the end, the nurse came in and said, okay, well, remember he asked you to do this and here's what we want you to do. And you follow up, you know, she's providing information to me, medical information. She's not my treating physician. Right. But she's an RN and she's well capable of talking to me about, you know, here's what we want you to do and then cut this dose in half and then we're going to do this lab test. Do you have any questions? Here's what, you know, there's there's that full continuum. The doctor has a role. I think the PA, the NP has a role. The nurse has a role. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. let's just make sure that everybody's in their right lane and doing what they should be doing. Another, uh, this is transitioning to another topic now, this isn't necessarily something that would be bipartisan, but it's something that popped up in the Washington Times this week um, from Brian McNichol, who is who writes for the, um, who used to write for the Heritage Foundation, and he used to be the director of communications for the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. Um, he is interested in outlying copay accumulators and maximizer, maximizer adjustment systems. First, this might be something that our, our listeners are unfamiliar with. So what is a copay accumulator? So, and I'll, I'll sort of talk about it at the 50,000 foot level sure, because it that's gets probably the right thing to do. <laughs> it, it even, you know, and I'm inside the industry and even me, as I try to unravel this whole thing, it makes my head hurt. So we all understand there's, you know, there's part of the cost of care that is my responsibility as a patient, whether it's mm-hmm. a copay when I go to the doctor's office or a coinsurance for certain things where I pay 10% of whatever the payment is. But we also understand that we have these, most plans now have these maximum out-of-pocket. 
So I might have a plan that says, well, I'm going to pay these co-pays and these co-insurances um, up to $1,000. And then once I've paid $1,000, the, the, the insurance company kicks in the rest. Okay. So mm -hmm. we, we sort of get that. Yep. All right. What muddies the water is, um, and, and some of these out-of-pockets are pretty pricey, 5000 10000 yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's say that I'm, I'm, you know, Joe average American, I'm making $55,000 a year and I have a $5,000 out of pocket expense. Ooh, you know, yeah. it's 10% of my salary. That's dicey. Yep. And they say, Ron, you know, you've got MS. Um, and there's this wonderful drug that's going to help control your disease, but it's going to hit your deductible. And so the first month you get this drug is $3,000 mm -hmm. and we need that money. And then the next month is another three thousand. But luckily for you, you're only going to pay two thousand for that. So in these first two months, and this, is, this is sort of a real drug I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to chew up your five thousand dollar deductible. Okay, I can't do that in two months. You know, if I'm making fifty five thousand dollars a year, that's more than I make take home in a month. Well, so the drug companies who know that once you've you've hit that maximum. Um, they say, well, we, we want you on your drug because we make money on that. Tell you what, we're going to do these copay assistance and we're going to pay it for you. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that way, you know, you'll get that 5,000. We're going to pay it because we know we're going to make a lot of profit after you've hit the 5,000. Okay. Great. And that's wonderful for the patient. Well, the insurance companies went, wait a minute, wait a minute. That out of pocket expense has to come out of Ron's pocket. So when you when a third party pays this, these copay accumulators, these these copay cards, et cetera, we're not going to count that towards his deductible. It has to be his money. Okay, right. this is where rub is. Now, some people say no, that should be illegal. We should force them to have to include this. So if the drug company wants to pay it, it should still hit his accumulator. You know. Other people say, well, that's all well and good, but then that means that since it's you know you know not going to come out of ron's pocket it's going to drive up utilization will cost the whole system even more money and, and it it just it gets complicated on this idea of a drug company paying my bill so that they'll get the extra profit for me down the road on their drug mm -hmm. and a lot of people look at that and go well then couldn't the drug company just charge less to everybody Right. You know, if they if they're <laughs> if it's so profitable that they can afford to chew up the first five grand or more, aren't they charging too much for their product? So um, that's what he's talking about there is that those should be allowed. Those drug copay cards should be allowed to hit that accumulator. Mm -hmm. And that's what that's what's interesting about this argument is that rather than, you know, exactly what you just said, going after the drug companies for not charging quite as much for some of these things, it's we'll just let them have the. Uh, the, the extra profit from paying for the, the drug initially. Right. That one we'll have linked as well. That one's in the Washington Times. And the final thing I wanted to talk about in this segment comes from the uh, Brownstone Institute. And I go back and forth on the Brownstone Institute, and I don't remember if I've talked about them on this program before, because they will sometimes have interesting things, and then other times they'll get into kind of some wacko COVID sort of stuff. Um. And in this particular essay um, by Pierre Corey, who is a, he's a critical care specialist, and he's also a teacher and researcher and the chief medical officer for the nonprofit organization Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, um, which I have not linked into, but based off of the description, it sounds like it was, it's probably in 
uh, it probably operates contrary to what the CDC might want. Uh, so you can take this with a grain of salt if you want. But in this essay, he talks about three medical policies that need to change um, immediately. Um, the first one is what he calls vaccine or bust. Um, we've talked a number of times, Ron, about the COVID vaccine. Um, and we've talked about the legality of people being able to require the COVID vaccine, either for schools or for uh, private businesses or to go participate in public events. Do you think that this is going to go away? Um, no, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> I don't. Um, I wish it would, but I don't. Um, I, you know, I, I found the I found this piece kind of interesting. Um, I didn't agree with it, but I did find it interesting. The, mm -hmm. the things I found interesting was, and we talked about this whole vaccine or bust, and we should get rid of this idea that it's, you know, it's it's an all or nothing proposition. And then his examples were you know a quote from biden which was mm -hmm. not accurate um surprised that a politician said something that wasn't entirely accurate and then a quote from rachel meadow which was also not accurate okay well part of me first thought well i hope and this has nothing to do with biden or rachel i could pick sean hannity and trump sure. i mean yeah. you know so um because i don't want this to be sort of one-sided but I hope people aren't taking their medical advice from a politician or a TV, you know, anchor person. Yeah. Okay. Because bad place to take it, whether they're right or left or whatever. But the idea that, you know, that he sends tends to want to bring that, well, you know, let's just get rid of the vaccine because clearly it, now that's going too far. You know, if yeah. you want to point, point, throw stones at, you know, the comment that it, Biden made about this being a pandemic of the unvaccinated, that's not true. Or that they don't spread the disease to anyone else, that's not true. Or, you know, Rachel Maddow saying the virus stops with every vaccinated person. No, that's not true. So I, that legitimate gripes, um, mm -hmm. but you can't then go, and, and clearly because those things were said and they're not true, it means the vaccine has no value. No, that's right. also not true. They were said yeah. by people in, in instances that um, yeah. they, we really probably shouldn't have been talking about it. I know Biden said something along the lines in, right. in one of the presidential debates that if you get vaccinated, you won't get COVID. And obviously that was not accurate. And um, he right. shouldn't, he should not have said that. Um, go ahead. No, to me, and that's just as, just as silly and inaccurate as, you know, when Trump said, hey, me, if we just injected bleach into the, you know, come on, guys. I mean, that's why I say, you know, if you're going to take your medical advice from a political figure, boy, you, you got some really problems right. there. Bad mm -hmm. place to get medical advice. I could not agree with you more, uh, but we live in a strange time. Uh, his second point had to do with a new California law that was passed earlier this year uh, that allows the uh, state to strip medical licenses of professionals uh, who knowingly spread uh, medical misinformation. Now, he says it's strict medical license of professionals who, quote, veer from the preferred political party line. Um, but as we've talked about on this program before, the independent practice of medicine is not a free license to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Well, so this one's interesting to me as well. So first of all, that law didn't have to be passed in order for physicians to have their licenses removed. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that the ability for, you know, um, 
review boards, medical licensure boards, et cetera, to pull a doctor's license has been there forever and continues to be there. And it's it can be for a number of things, including um, providing things that are sort of unethical or incorrect information, sort of habitually. Um, now, the same exists for CPAs, the same exists for attorneys. The same, I mean, there's a lot of professions where pilots, et cetera, where your license to do what you do can be removed from you for um, certain acts. I mean, if theoretically, if you're a CPA and you start advertising, taxes are illegal, don't pay them. You should not pay your federal income taxes. Yeah. You can have your CPA license removed. Yeah. If you're an attorney and you start spreading all this false information about, you know, kill people, you can't get arrested for that. The federal government cannot, you know, arrest a sovereign person and that's what you are. You can have your law license removed. And 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 it's happened. Yeah. So this concept that doctors suddenly are getting their licenses removed for saying things that are inaccurate, not a new concept. It became politicized. And then the you know, the example that he uses you know, uh, Peter McCullough, and he's saying, you know, basically that, you know, all he did was point out, you know, ask some questions and point out facts. Well, no, <laughs> he actually did a lot more than that. Right. Um, what Peter McCullough got his board certification, and everything pulled for was routinely doing things that the, you know, that those governing bodies feel are incredibly inaccurate, like, and this is one of his quotes, the vaccines should be pulled off the market. They are clearly not solving the problem. Now, I think you can have a legitimate clinical discussion about, you know, how much help do they do for children below sure. the age of certain point? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, should we be doing this for this part? You know, but I don't know anyone who would agree that the vaccine should be pulled off the market. And pretty much everybody agrees that the vaccines significantly reduce the amount of fatalities. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to basically say that the focus should be on treating high risk patients who develop symptoms. And he was recommending ivermectin, right. which is not <laughs> a clinically accepted treatment protocol. So, you know, to say all he was doing was quoting data or, you know, questioning things. No, no, Peter, that's not really accurate. And if you're going to take a position that vaccines should be pulled from the market. If you're going to take a position that instead, the best clinical course of treatment is to wait till you get symptoms and then treat with ivermectin, that I think is clearly contrary to the science and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you get to be a doctor if that's what you're going to do. Just right. like I don't think you get to be a lawyer if you say, kill people, it's not illegal. So my, my opinion. No, and I think I, I tend to agree, and I think a, a lot of our listeners would agree as well. I, I don't know if you mentioned this accidentally or, or on purpose, but I'll take it as on purpose. When you mentioned the sovereign citizens kind of thing, you know, that's yeah. a slightly, it's a growing conspiracy. Um, well, you have the kind of uber libertarian aspect of just, I'm a free citizen, you can't do what you want with me. And then you have the weird conspiracy that Congress was somehow replaced, or the government was somehow replaced after the Civil War with a fake I mean it's a whole weird thing but I was thinking I would I would be interested to see um, if there are physicians who would f consider themselves quote-unquote sovereign citizens and what that kind of society would look like as a, a from a medical perspective from a public health perspective of what a sovereign society might look like <laughs> right way more way more and than what we'd have to do in this program but 
Yeah, and there are a lot of YouTube videos of sovereign citizens being led to jail in handcuffs, arguing all the way that you can't do this. And you know what? It happened. So you can can think it all you want to, and just like Wesley Slipes thought that he didn't have to pay taxes and serve jail time for it. Right. And, you know, you can think about kind of even how ridiculous it is that even if you think you're a sovereign citizen— you're living in a country that has laws. It's not like if I go to Canada, Brittany Griner knows this best. She, cause she went to Russia with, um, uh, THC in her, mm-hmm. her suitcase, which is not legal right. there. And she was given nine years in prison. Granted, I think she right. was charged for espionage, which is right. <laughs> probably not the right charge for that particular thing. But you know, it, just because you're a, you, you claim you're not a citizen of a country doesn't make you exempt from the laws. Anyway, as a tangent, maybe another time. Uh, the last thing he mentions yeah. in his piece um, is a little bit uh, on the quote-unquote local end of things. He talks about the D.C. vaccine mandate for the schools. And D.C. is kind of an interesting thing. Um, they, they're requiring school-age children to, to have the COVID-19 vaccine. And I believe for at least a little while there was... Uh, Students were able to somehow sign their own waiver to get a COVID vaccine without their parents' knowledge. I don't know if that's still the case. Um, you can have a, you could have a debate on whether or not that should be allowed. But we've talked about before that there is a legality and there is precedent for schools requiring vaccines. I'm, you know, and even there are some religious groups that can get exceptions to them, but for the most part, vaccines have been required everywhere since. As, at least as long as I can remember and as long as my parents can remember. Yeah, and, and uh, this is one that I, I find sort of philosophically interesting, and it's how um, some people like to change lanes from individual rights, federal rights, states' rights, okay? Mm-hmm. And whichever position suits them best they want to now again I, I i can respect somebody who is a dyed in the wool libertarian who says i it's all individual rights in the state the fed shouldn't be able to force anybody to do anything i may disagree with them but i at least can respect the consistency sure what i don't respect is when somebody will go well you know states rights states rights states rights okay i i can understand that argument and i can look at the constitution and say yeah, the Constitution says these things are federal and everything else is state, so I hear where you're coming from. And then like this, the District of Columbia or a state says, hey, we're going to mandate this. No, 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 individual rights, individual rights. Hold on. I thought you said states' rights, right. you know. Or at the same time, then they'll flip and go, well, no, this needs to be a federal thing. We should, you know. So, you know, do I 100% agree with a COVID vaccine mandate for school-aged children? No, I, I, I don't. My kids are vaccinated, but I don't I don't know as I go as far as saying this has to be a mandated vaccine, given the fact that kids aren't as impacted. This isn't smallpox. It isn't, you know, measles. OK, mm-hmm. that being said, I live in a state and I live by those states rules. And if my state said this is a mandate, I would live with the mandate. That's part of what happens. I don't get to agree with everything that my state does or doesn't do. I have to accept it. Um, so, I, you know, if he says D.C. should get rid of the mandate, fine, that's your opinion. But as long as it's still there, you need to comply with it. No, and I I agree. And like I, like we said before, it's it's been demonstrated time and time and again that it is legal 
to require these sorts of things. Oh, yeah. I, I did think it was interesting that during the election, when the CDC added it to the um, recommended um, vaccine, um, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name now, but the schedule for vaccines for young children, yeah. mm-hmm. they added the COVID-19 vaccine on there. And then you did see it turn into a little bit of a political thing, like everything else, uh, as we went to the election about what governors were going to require it not. And, and I did think it was interesting that at least here in Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, um, in one of the debates said, no, we're not going to add that. She was a Democrat. No, we're not going to add that to the, to the schedule here in Michigan to require students to go to schools. Um, we, you can join the conversation. You can join the conversation by emailing the program flatlining at substack.com. You can comment on the program wherever listening to this podcast or on the program page at flatlining.net. Um, Substack has a neat chat feature, which I haven't quite figured out how to use it. And maybe we'll use that to our advantage in the future. You can also tweet me or Ron on Twitter. I'm at Radio Handley and Ron is at Ron Howergan. You can find all of these articles uh, in the show notes for today's program or at flatlining.net. And speaking of flatlining.net, the last topic I want to talk about, Ron, spend our last few minutes on, is something that I mentioned in uh, the Friday Pulse Check newsletter last week. And it was an opinion piece from Wendell Potter, who we've talked about before, former Cigna insider, and Representative uh, Jan Schakowsky uh, uh, in, in Congress. I believe she's a Democrat from Virginia. Um, I, and I will check on that as we have that discussion. But, of course, Wendell Potter has talked repeatedly about um, the profits of a lot of the payers. We've talked about that before, um, how, you know, in the kind of don't, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game kind of thing. Um, he was very concerned about Medicare Advantage programs and that they're scamming seniors. So I guess at the first, I guess I'll ask you the kind of the first knee-jerk reaction question, which is, does Medicare Advantage scam seniors? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, let me explain what I mean by that. Sure. And, and for, for full disclosure, um, Wendell's a good friend of mine. Um, I've known Wendell for a long time. Um, he's a former Cigna executive. We didn't know each other when we worked at Cigna. We worked in different areas, but we worked at the same time, knew a lot of the same people. So he does understand the inner workings of how insurance companies and insurance companies are about profit as they arguably should be there to return an investment to their shareholders. And many of those shareholders are retired people that require, you know, that rely on their dividends and stock price to, for their retirement. So it's not being profit motivated is not a bad thing per se. Um, now it's, it's too easy to just say yes. And so the real answer is yes, to some degree. And what Wendell's pointing out is they promise more than they deliver and they don't, tell you the sort of the negatives to it. It's a sales pitch, free healthcare, zero copay, add money back to your social security check, you know, see any doctor you want to, you know, well, they're not going to tell you the full story. I mean, you know, car companies don't come out with an ad and look at our new car and it only breaks down rarely. You know, they talk about how wonderful it is. So the problem that I think people have with this is, you see senior citizens who are probably some of the least adept at sort of seeing through the fog, if you will, and dealing with the sales pitch, who get this wonderful sales pitch. Then when they get in it, what do you mean I have to get permission to get an MRI? What do you mean that I have to get authorization before I can have this surgery done? Or what do you mean I now have mm-hmm. to go to this hospital over that hospital, which are some of what he's calling or the, you know, or the negative side effects of this. They don't understand it, but then they're trapped in it. So 
to the extent that they're doing a sales pitch on people who are ripe to be, you know, tricked, if you will, and they're not telling the full story, yeah, in, in that sense, they are scamming these individuals. Um, now, is it a scam like people would think of where, give me your credit card and I'll, you know, fix your debt, or, and then they just steal all their money? No, it's not that kind of scam. Um, but he, he raises, I think, a decent point, which is we've got these for-profit companies that are, and maybe this would be a better way to put it, taking advantage of our elderly. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably in my, that'd be probably better from my perspective vernacular. And before I continue, I want to correct myself. Uh, Representative Schenkowski is from the uh, the Illinois 9th Congressional District, Democrat yeah. from the Illinois 9th, not Virginia. So I apologize about that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to talk about that because a lot of the concerns that they have that they talk about in their Newsweek piece um, are, are particularly about kind of I, and I don't know if I, specialty is the right kind of word for this, but about sort of specialty um, things, particularly with their networks for skilled nursing and uh, mm -hmm. rehabilitation, that they're they're not wide enough mm -hmm. for what they're able to provide for a lot of um, seniors. And as I'm mm -hmm. listening to you talk, it sounds like that they're they're definitely on to something there. Oh yeah. Well, and think about it. Um, part of the reason why they're not as big in those areas is you can't make money on. Medicare Advantage people who are in skilled nursing facilities. Mm -hmm. So what happens is people get in and when they need rehabilitation or skilled nursing, they realize it's not as good. And then their next opportunity, they drop out of their Medicare Advantage plan and go back to sort of straight Medicare or traditional Medicare. Well, that's exactly what the insurance company wants them to do. Um, it'd be like, a, you know, a uh, an insurance company having a limited network of rheumatologists. Well, mm -hmm. I might want to do that so I don't attract a lot of people that need a rheumatologist because that's an ongoing chronic situation that costs a lot of money. And and again, I you know we've said this on the programs, you know the joke on the inside the insurance industry it's called health insurance for a reason because we can't make money on sick people. Right. We want the healthy people. <laughs> you know. So he you know and, and Wendell knows the inside of how this stuff works. Mm -hmm. and he's got it right. You know that that they're promising people the world and then especially when you need something like skilled nursing or rehabilitation you realize you really don't get what you're being promised. Now, I would argue that there's an awful lot of sales pitches that are like that in our society, you know, not just healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, several months ago, and I, I can't remember exactly when it was, and I'm trying to find the article that I uh, had cited in the Friday Pulse check, but there were numerous complaints about um, particularly television ads for Medicare Advantage plans with CMS. Um, in, uh, and in particular, the ones that include uh, kind of your high-profile senior celebrities like Joe Namath, um, mm -hmm. that they were absolutely being deceptive about the type of um, things that they were that they were um, going to be able to provide the seniors if they signed up for the Medicare Advantage plan. I, I'm trying to see. Um, because CMS said that they were going to make some changes regarding how Medicare Advantage could um, have TV ads, but it looks like now that I'm looking at it, some of these changes aren't going to take effect until January one of next year. Um, yeah. However, uh, they uh, one of the changes is that the Medicare Advantage ads will not have to use the file and use framework, which means they have to get approved beforehand. Um, and it looks like that might be going away. So that's an interesting change if they're getting complaints about um, 
some of these Medicare Advantage ads, because we see them all the time. It seems that they've almost replaced all the political ads that we've got sick of several months ago by seeing ads for United Healthcare or uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Humana, WellCare, and Better, any of the ones that offer a Medicare Advantage plan. Yeah, it's extremely profitable, um, you know, for them to, to to take care of these patients. And and again, not not all Medicare Advantage stuff is bad. I mean, in some respects, you know, if you're a senior citizen and you can you can join one of these plans for very low copay or very low out of pocket, and suddenly your the Medicare coinsurance and deductible gets paid for, that's good for people, especially seniors who are on a, a fixed income. You know, so mm-hmm. it's not like it's they're all the root of all evil, but as Wendell points out, you know, there are people who get caught in something that they don't fully understand or get sold something they believe is going to be there and it isn't. And, and, and that's, to, that's problematic. And, and to correct myself, like, so there's a comma here that I missed when I was reading it. In January 1, 2023, the ads will have to be approved by CMS compared to the current Right. Um, process, which is now they just need to be shown to CMS, but they don't have to be approved beforehand. Staying on this topic, go ahead. You sound like you were going to say something. Well, I was going to say, and, the, and the, the, advan- the reason why that's important is what they were doing was they would file them with CMS. By the time CMS actually reviewed them and said, we don't like it, they'd say, oh, we'll pull it out of the air, and the open enrollment's over. Right. It's done. Yeah. So that's why they're saying, no, no, you have to get approval for us before you air the ad. Because they literally, there were times that they were airing them. By the time it got through the bureaucracy and CMS said, hey, we don't like that. They go, okay, we'll stop. And it was already ended. You know, so. One of the things that Wendell and Representative Schakowsky didn't, I don't know if they explicitly mentioned this in their uh, column in Newsweek, but I know uh, that this is also at the heart of what they're talking about, is um, market share for a lot of the Medicare Advantage companies. And uh, Becker's Payer Issues this week put out a, um, a, a report on the top marketplaces that have the least competitive Medicare Advantage programs. Um, and I'm gonna list off some of them just to give you an idea of where these might be, because they're all over the country and they're not necessarily in big cities. And in fact, it's probably the big cities where you have the, the most competitive market share, I would argue. Um, and I'm, I want to get your opinion, Ron, and your analysis on how this affects the Medicare Advantage um, kind of market and business. There are four markets in the U.S. where there is one Medicare Advantage plan that has more than 85% of the market share, and that's in Lawton, Oklahoma, which is Humana, the Hello California and Napa California with Kaiser Permanente, and Casper, Wyoming with United Healthcare. Um, there are several with over 80% of the market share. Um, Winnetachi, Washington has Carl Health, uh, Salinas, California has Montage Health, and Valdosta, Georgia, and Wichita Falls, Texas have United Healthcare. Where we're based in North Carolina, Wilmington, New Bern, um, and uh, Jacksonville have Humana, which has over 70% of the market share in those places. How does that affect um, networks with some of these providers? With, with the networks of the provider groups that they're supposed to be able to, to, to provide to some of these seniors? Uh, and how does it affect the profits for some of these companies? Well, so first of all, the whole purpose of antitrust legislation, monopoly legislation, the Sherman Act or the Clayton Act, is the concern that just because when somebody has too much of a market, they could do bad things. Okay, Having the bulk of a market isn't in and of itself, um, 
illegal, it's when you start to do bad things. And so it can, it can create an, uh, an investigation. Well, the problem is when somebody gets that big, what are they going to do with it? Could Humana say to, and I'll pick, let's say the ophthalmologists in those areas who are, you know, highly dependent on Medicare individuals. Hey, you're going to have to take X dollars less than you otherwise would, or I'm going to turn off all this volume. Could they do something harmful? Um, could they, you know, treat their customers poorly because they're really the only ones selling in that area? And so that's the concern is what bad things happen when you get monopolies. Um, and so one of the things that, that people are very concerned about is these highly concentrated areas. What are they doing? You know, what, you know, what bad things happen because we rely in this country on competition being the great equalizer, the thing that makes the system work and makes the customer happy because this, it's the old thing of, you know, I, I grew up working in restaurants and one of the mm -hmm. restaurants I worked at, the owner was correct in saying, please understand that the average person who drives to our restaurant to eat passes at least six other restaurants on their way here. That's why we will give them great food and great service because they don't have to come here. Well, if we were the only restaurant in that county, eh, maybe we don't give them such great service. Maybe we overcharge. Maybe the food isn't that good right. because there's really nowhere else they can go. And that's a concern. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly enough, insurance companies are exempted from federal antitrust laws. <laughs> they are expressly exempted from federal antitrust laws so long as the states regulate the business of insurance. So this has been a, you know, a problem for some people to go, wait a minute, even if they are violating Sherman Antitrust, there's nothing we can do about it because they are expressly, and they're not the only ones, but they're the biggest ones that are exempted from antitrust laws. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Ron, this has been a great discussion uh, today. We've, we've covered a lot of issues and we want to hear from you. So again, feel free to tweet us. Ron is at Ron Howard at Twitter and I'm at Radio Hamley. Send us an email, comment, share the program. It really helps us out and we'd appreciate it here at Flatlining and Fulcrum Strategies. Ron, before we go, I just want to say uh, to all of our listeners that if you're turning on the TV on Thanksgiving Day, you should be rooting for the Lions because they're the underdogs. And uh, it'll be interesting to see the Buffalo Bills back in Detroit uh, because for those of you that don't follow the NFL, uh, they got six feet of snow in Buffalo last week, and the the stadium where the Buffalo Bills play was completely full. And since the Lions had an away game, they actually played the Bills actually played in Detroit, uh, and they're returning to Detroit on Thursday to play the Lions. But you ought to root for the Lions just because they they need some help. I agree, completely agree. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, go blue against Ohio State on uh, on Saturday. Uh, that one I got to throw in there as well. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for joining us again today. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Anytime. And like the Friday Pulse Check, the final thought is taking uh, a week off this week as well, as I need to focus on uh, good thoughts so that the Lions can beat the Bills on Thursday. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, and now on Stitcher and Pandora, or wherever you get podcasts. For Ron Howard and I, Matthew Henley, have a good holiday weekend, and happy Thanksgiving.